self-care. Soul care. Book care. It's time to celebrate life. All right. And we're back. And we're back. And we're back. Welcome back, good people. Nice to be back for our, oh my God, what is it? September. Okay. I'm going to say, I thought she was about to count our episodes. No, yeah, I was not about to do that. For our September episode, welcome back to Books and Bubbles. I am Brianna. And I'm Brittany. And here at Books and Bubbles, we read and review books from Black and Brown authors in the process of reviewing these books. We also indulge in a little bubbly. And our bubbly is also curated by Black and Brown people. So welcome back to Books and Bubbles. Welcome for those who are new listeners, and we hope that you'll go back and enjoy some of our previous episodes. But for our September episode, if you recall, we will be reading Truth Table. Well, we have read and we'll be reviewing and discussing Truth Table. I want to say all three of their names, but then I know I'm not going to do it right. So we just going to say <laughs> we're reading Truth Table. Y'all, if y'all forgot, I'm just not good at pronunciations. And I've recognized my weaknesses and I won't judge myself. Um, so are you names? Okay, so uh, Akimini, Michelle, and Christina. And okay. I hope I didn't mess up Akimini's name. So I think if we go by. Yeah. I think if we do the, just the first names, we'll get him some right. Ladies, don't listen to this and talk about us. Thank you. But it was a wonderful read. So we're excited to start discussing. But y'all know we have a whole routine before we get to our book. So we're not going to jump too quick. Okay. Um, I guess there's nothing super new going on. Still working. Yeah. I'm gonna try yeah. What? I'm going to try pasta. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. She's back in school. She's working a regular job and she's sad. Everybody don't get summers off. That's all I'm saying. I just, it ain't been right since 2019. All the teachers. Right. I, I don't even know who I am post-COVID. I haven't discovered my new post-COVID self. Yeah. It's been three years since COVID and it feels like it's um, yesterday. No, legit. I'm finding myself. Right. And like take how adults feel post COVID, and I put that in the adolescent. They're crazy. So I right. feel like I had like real children since 2019. Give me the children who used to have some semblance of sanity because they crazy. Right. Post COVID is a strange, strange place that we're all still navigating. So you know we're here, alive. No big announcements from me. I'm trying to think, is there any? new thing going on in the world that's worth discussing. But honestly, it's too sad. Anything new is sad. Right. Like I we're in the midst of like a storm. Now. Like I've seen in the past couple of days that I feel like. No. Warrants a discussion. Mm-mm, not without therapy. So no. <laughs> okay. You always want to pull to the press and stuff. It could be entertaining too. Like what? I don't know. We don't do a lot of pop culture on here guys, but. Like, I can't even think of anything that's like been going on. That's not an idea. Nick Cannon had some more churn. Um, he loves kids. Yeah, he's always having kids. The storm is here. Um, 
Hurricane Ina Irma. What's her name? What? Ian? Ian. Ian. Hurricane Ian has arrived. So God bless all those in the path. So on CNN 10 with the students, I learned that until the 1970s, hurricanes from the 50s until the 70s only had female names. Now, ain't that a shame? You don't name a storm after a woman. What you trying to say? Yeah. I guess that's problematic. It's beyond sexist. It is. I actually binge watched The Housewives of Atlanta. Not a great season. I didn't love it. Yeah, I didn't finish it. Right. I And I had been putting it off. I had not seen one episode. I had been putting it off and I heard part three of the reunion came on. So I literally in the past like week have watched the entire season. It's just the same old, same old. Yeah. Really, since Phaedra left, it's not been the same. Mm-mm. I miss Phaedra. I need Phaedra, Nene, and Kim. <laughs> See, I might could do it, I can. But I do need Phaedra. Honestly, I want Phaedra and Portia back. I maybe could do it because Nene in her last couple seasons was a little boring. Yeah, she started. Nene, she- yeah, early Nene was it. Later, Nene, it just was like I married Kim because she got like weird and controlling, and like Corey would drop her off to like the meetups. I was like, get a life, right? And they have their own. I don't know if it's still going on, but they had a family yeah, reality for a while. And all they want to do is have children too, right? But I do miss Phaedra. I feel like she was very entertaining, and Portia's not gonna go back because she knows she took somebody man. And she don't want to have to conf- uh, confront that issue. No, Portia was wrong. So they're just going to have to wipe out and restart. And that's what they need to do. Right. I'm like, everybody's 60 and up. Why y'all still arguing? Why y'all still beefing? Why y'all still talking behind each other's back? It's at this age. Like, it's so messy. And, and that's why so- it just kind of gets redundant. It's just like, all right, same old, same old. Same argument, same shape, but... That's it. So clearly nothing else has been going on. Because you made it's this not, The only thing we could talk about was the Housewives of Atlanta. Okay. So we might as well jump into our doc spot. Yo. Um, I don't feel like we need to explain what doc spot is. I feel like we should just do it and then people should just. We, y'all gonna catch on. At this point, if you're a new listener, go back a couple episodes. We'll explain what doc spot is. For our OGs, you know what's up. So. Um, Doc Spot, we're going to go ahead and jump into our self-care, soul care, and book care. Brittany's got the first tip. Okay, so real facts. So I was perusing articles, and the LA Times did an article on how walking through Target can be self-care. And they talked about the process of like just perusing things, things that are actually feasible in the average American's budget. And how it's like this thing that just like releases good endorphins. And I was like, let me find out when I go to Target that it's actually helping my life. So that made me low-key excited because I've started doing Target pickup because I have a spirit. But now that I know that walking through is going to help my brain, I'm about to walk back through Target. I love walking through Target. And now they have ultra. I actually like, I, I I honestly probably 95% of all my purchases are pickup at this point. But there is a different feeling that you get when you walk through a store, when you look 
on the shelves. You honestly, though, you will get better deals. You don't get clearance, super low price, money off, money off when you're buying online. So I totally agree. I have like a routine when I go on Target. Start on the side with a dollar spot. Walk through. I always have to pick up something. It's a dollar. It's three dollars or it's five dollars. There's at least one thing you want in the in the dollar spot section. Then I just make my way. It's like I find a bunch of foolishness. And then I actually like the clothes in Target. So I'm mm-hmm. usually like sucked into buying a dress. Yeah. The home decor at Target super cute. There's always something. There's Target, a- you do have to go on with the mind that like you can't buy everything you put your hand on. You got to be strong. Right. Because that's the temptation of mine. And that's why I don't like to, because I overspend. But sometimes you need to just do a little self-care. No, big facts. But yeah, there is a feeling. I usually allow myself to walk through stores more so during the holidays. Because to me, it's not Thanksgiving, Christmas, if we don't walk through the store. Even my husband, the only time he wants to walk through the store with me is Christmas. And then he gets like excited. There's something about like Christmas yeah, time. And holidays. Yeah. Honestly, though, y'all, walking through the store with Brittany is like, a different experience. She stops and looks at everything. She compares everything. She always wants opinions on everything. And you just be, you get tired. You do. I could, I could see how it could be overwhelming. Okay. So how about this? It's Libra season. Shout out to all the October, late September babies. Yo. So I found a meme that was like going making a decision with the Libra and they were so indecisive. And I said, let me find out I'm not the only one. And I really felt like a moment of solidarity with people under this Libra season because I was like, is there a Libra thing to struggle with decisions? You're the only adult Libra that I know personally. So Andre's a Libra. I don't know him. I don't know whether he's indecisive. (laughs) So you're right, because that doesn't help. That doesn't help. You're right. right. So I, I like know personally, so it could be a thing. Other other Libra that I know is my godchild, and she's 13, so who knows? She might be indecisive, but now you got me. It's a lot. And if that's the trade of Libras, I believe it because that's who you are. Okay, you know, it's time to do soul care. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, moving on to soul care. So my soul care tip for the episode is to pray in different random places and pray throughout your day. Um, Really, it's going to be pray as you live life. So pray when you have coffee, pray when you're doing laundry, pray when you're waiting in line, pray while you're walking the dog. Those are all just daily things things that you're doing and um, you can take the opportunity just to say a prayer. I prefer personally to pray like this because I'm not a long prayer. You know, some people like will get on their knees at 5 a.m. and be in prayer for an hour. That's not who I am. I have not reached that point in my journey and that's not who I am. I get distracted very easily. And sometimes even my short prayers, I find myself my mind drifting. So When I say prayers of like Thanksgiving and things like that throughout my day, short prayers when I'm driving, short prayers in the shower, short prayers when 
<clears throat> I'm doing something regular, I feel like it helps me stay connected because uh, I can't devote the type of time. And I agree. Um, I definitely have prayer ADD. The devil is busy. So, like, me, no, me doing like that long prayer by the side of my bed, I used to feel so bad. I would get so distracted. The devil would bring all type of horrible thoughts to my mind, just like ratchet, like the most ratchet things would come to my mind. So I went to some like conference or something and it was like, do short prayers throughout the day. It's the most life-changing experience I ever had. So like when I need them, when I think about it in the shower, like those are my prayer times. So I completely agree. And yeah, I can't, I can't do the long one. And I, I have and more power to people who can like mm-hmm. go into the prayer room and break and break it down for a couple hours. It's not me. It's I think not I just me. have general ADD. And now I wonder if it's genetic. Why do we both struggle? Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> but I cannot. I even like I always felt, you know, when you're when you're young and you think back about like how your parents just sat through church and looked interested the whole time. And now I'm realizing that like it's all fake. Adults are just as bored, <laughs> their mind is drifting. They just know how to hide it better than children. But I don't so, I'm not saying church is boring, but I'm saying like even like little things like conferences. I get bored at conferences, even when it's relevant to my practice, to my field. I just hate sitting and doing something for long periods of time. I have to take breaks. I have to switch. But now that I think about it, I don't get bored at church, but I do get distracted. So if somebody comes in looking a particular way or they're doing right. something like pre-COVID church, because now a lot of it is virtual for us. Me and my husband definitely be like passing notes. Like, look. <laughs> so I guess to your point, I don't get bored. But I do allow myself to get distracted and come back. So right. let's talk about pre-COVID church, how we was in church from like 11 to 2. And we did that. And we were like, okay. I could not do that today. I need to ease back in. Take me to one hour, then we'll do two. But the I, thing is. I can't do 11 to 2 no more. But the thing is, our pastor can't even. Because 11 is now to like 12, 15. I'll be like, oh, you done. Yeah. Yeah. That's what people need. Give me a song, give me a word, give me a prayer. And we add. There was a lot of fluff from that 11 to 2 church. Jesus did not preach that long because if I should read the Sermon on the Mount within 20 minutes, that's how long the sermon was. It's the whole sermon. Right. I don't even know what. It's because it was like five songs. There was a long prayer. Offering the whole thing. Announcements. Mm -hmm. New visitors. Right. Right. Stuff that's like, come on. Certain churches, you got to actually talk if you're a visitor. I'm glad we attempted the transition from that because that was bondage. And let's just talk about how the workplace is also beginning to transition because that's bondage. And everybody should be allotted remote opportunities, even if it's once a month, once or twice a quarter. You don't need me sitting at this desk at this job every day. Mm-mm. I feel like 75% of jobs could have some remote component. Definitely. That's just me. Moving on, because remote remote working is also soul care. It is. Yeah. It's Y'all, not I'm just fully remote. I don't have to worry about... And I believe in hybrid because I do need like a little more human connection. I think my perfect job yeah. would be hybrid. 
But I definitely agree. I was thinking about um, someone I know that has to go on like bed rest because of pregnancy. And I'm just like, she's good because she has remote access. Right. So you don't necessarily have to stop doing work. You just don't need to physically be moving. Why I got to lose money? Because y'all don't trust me online. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Fight for remote. You can't hold me down. Hybrid. 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 Okay. So So my last tip. Buka. Okay. Why is there an accent? Okay. I have book care. And so this is all about teaching children how to take care of books. This seems very simple to our 70s, 80s, 90s babies who probably went to libraries and parents might have had books. But a lot of children don't know how to take care of books. They eat with them. They have water, pets. They draw. Um, As a high school educator, I realize that because I'm just like cringe sometimes. Um, and I first would just give my students books. Then I realized I would have to have book etiquette talks and mini lessons. And they don't know. True. So parents, aunties, godparents, uncles, grandparents, teach children how to appreciate and protect books for the longevity. There is a whole push back to like physical books. Um, and I've been noticing that on like social media, book talk, all those places. And so more people are drawn to like physical books and people read digitally. Don't get me wrong. But a lot of people still like traditional books. And how do I keep that book? I got to learn how to appreciate it. There might be a dog ear. I'm not anti-dog ear. Some people are like anti-dog ear, get a bookmark. But some people like fold a whole page and half. I'm like, so who can read that after you? Nobody. <laughs> yeah, folding a whole page is pretty. I can't stand it. So teach the churn how to take care of the books, y'all. I believe the children are the future. Teach them well and let them lead the way. I've honestly always hated that song. I don't know why. I only like it on Coming to America. Get him a scent. Give him all the beauty. I hate it. All right. To make it easier. That's Did she write it or is it somebody else's song? I, I don't feel like Whitney had that in her spirit. That sounds like a, a middle-aged white man wrote that who felt What's bad about history. What is this? I hate it. Yeah. It definitely gives me, I hate my privilege, but I donated and I wrote this song. Right. Right. And to start the song off with, I believe the children are the future. But it's super 80s. Well, and let them lead the way. I'm like. It's super 80s. Everything was heal the world, hold hands. There is no color. We can make the world a better place. Why do I know every word? I hate it. (laughs) It's always the songs you hate that you know all the words to. I hate everything that's inspirational. I hate Hero. Oh, I hate it. I hate it. Make it gospel or make it like love. But I hate inspirational. Just say Jesus. If you don't want to say it, then leave it alone. I'm also not going to watch this new Whitney movie that come out. Because y'all need to let, let Whitney let lie in her brave. There's like three of them at this point. And that's my auntie, but it's not for everybody. What are we learning? She did crack. She was with Bobby. We saw all we needed to see from the Bobby and Whitney on reality show. She might have had an addiction, and that's how we're going to frame it. Your wordplay, I don't like that. Y'all know she did crack. Rare not, she didn't do crack. She did cocaine. Yeah, like way. Yes. Okay. We don't give her cocaine. She lied. Because y'all don't tell me Bobby and do it. Bobby was on the heavy. Yeah, Bobby the person that can be high his whole life. Right. Girl, so Bobby has a new reality show out. 
don't know. That is also the end of Doc Spot. Thanks. But Bobby <laughs> has a reality show with the wife, and like they have they have like four young kids. I'm like shocked, like under twelve kids. So in the entire show, I don't I didn't watch the whole thing. I watched like three episodes, but he's like getting prepared to go on tour and new edition again. It's concerning how out of shape Bobby is. And I'm not going to say I'm in shape, but do y'all remember how hard Bobby was breathing on Versus? But it reminds me it was that of DMX because after right. drug use, your organs do not work the same way. Bobby's in heart failure because <laughs> there's no way he's breathing his heart for these everyday activities. But yeah, over time, you're, you can't come off of that. But they struggle. And then, you know, drugs keep you small. So now all of a sudden you gain this weight. Most people pick up about 50 pounds when they stop doing any type of drugs, smoking, whatever. Right. And your body can't take it. First of all, y'all need fruit, and, fruits and vegetables. And water. And water. Yeah. Water. He makes you breathe real hard. I said, oh, God, help him. But you see how yeah. the drugs do. Oh, God bless yeah. you. Don't do drugs, kids. Recipe. Let that be your example. Mm-mm-mm. So, y'all already know what time it is. What was this dance called? The train? No, the back came out. That train. But what she said, come on, ride the train. Uh, the back came bounce when it said, said. Okay, but was the other song called The Train? The other dance called The Train? Yeah, come on, ride that train. And ride that train. Okay, it's bubbly time. Bubbles, bubbles, uh, bubbles, bubbles, uh, 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 bubbles, bubbles, uh. That was me doing. So our bubbly for the month is the John Legend Signature Series by LBE and their Chardonnay. Hmm. This is a 2020 Chardonnay available at Total Wine. And we forgot to plug Drizzly. Who are we? So it's also available through Drizzly. Drizzly is an online platform where you can order your beer, wine, and liquor to be delivered right to your door. Mm. Drizzly is able to make those deliveries in an hour or less, or you can schedule your deliveries to be made at future dates if you know you have an event coming up. Here at Books and Bubbles, we are partnering with Drizzly, and you can find their link in our description box of this episode. Follow us on our Instagram, Facebook, and TikToks, and we very frequently give out coupon codes. Um, and money off, especially with upcoming holidays. Um, and then for those who are first-time Drizzly users, if you use our link, you will actually get money off your first purchase. So shop Drizzly um, and use Drizzly to order this LVE Chardonnay. Just a couple notes regarding this Chardonnay. Um, it is 14.5%. So mm. decent percent for a wine, 14.5. That's good. Mm-hmm. Um, it has notes or a taste of honeysuckle and vanilla, and it is medium bodied. 
Um, this Bartlett pear and hints of bright Granny Smith notes gives this Sonoma County wine, life, and zesty drive. Light vanilla flavors provide the fruit with direction and balance, but stay subtle and keep the wine's complexity and smoothness. So you can get a 750 ml bottle from Total Wine for $14.99. So very affordable, and it's just one of the available options in the John Legend series of wines. So check it out. Um, it's good. Brittany did say that it is a drier uh, wine. It's a Chardonnay, so it is dry. Um, so it may be an acquired taste, but overall... If this isn't the one for you, he does have other options. So just check out John Legend at Total Wine. Check him out. Um, yes. So I guess we can go ahead and dive into Truth's Table uh, and discuss their book. So the book is broken up into three parts. We, because the book is... I don't know. How do I want to phrase it? It's a great book. It, there's a lot that is included. There's a lot there. And so we thought in order to do this book justice, that we would break this up and make this a two-part episode. Any other things you want to say about that? Okay. So like Brianna said, this book is definitely deep. We wanted to give it justice and to try to incorporate this Broad band of knowledge into one episode. We either have been here all day like a Mike Todd sermon and or we would have missed something. So we are definitely dividing this up. So we have uh, something that will drop in September, something that will drop in October so we could speak to the people. The entire book is called Truth's Table, Black Women's Musings on Life, Love, and Liberation. Power to the people, y'all. I'm holding up my face. Okay. That happened. Power to the people. So um, because we're breaking it up, we're going to kind of be able to talk about each individual. Are they chapters? Yeah. Yeah, they're chapters. Each individual chapters and kind of um, give them their own dedicated time. So we'll go ahead and start with chapter one. Um. How do you say her name? Um, I'm going to say Mini. Ekamini. Okay. All right. So this book is written by three black women. Um, yes, three black women. And so each chapter rotates between the authors. So the first author has Nigerian American heritage. So Brianna's going to kind of lead. The first right. chapter. So this chapter is called the um, Audacious perseverance of colorism. So Akemi, Akemini is a Nigerian American. Um, and in this chapter, just like an overview before we pull out individual things to discuss, um, she just really discusses colorism, um, not only what colorism, you know, historical context of colorism, um, but then just also goes into the, I guess the church, um, and their perspective on colorism. Um, and then she talks about her own personal history with that. Uh, so I think she does a great job in writing this chapter. 
there's a lot of really interesting points that she discusses, even some that I wasn't even um, aware of or hadn't thought about in a really long time. And it kind of was enlightening to me. Um, But I guess one of the first things that we can talk about in this chapter um, is just, I don't know, maybe I'll save that for a little bit later, but we can talk about the, um, she takes a second to talk about bleaching, which we all, I think, are aware of. Um, And she talks about what a big role that played in her personal experience as a Nigerian American and how she had experiences with her aunts bleaching their skin. And, you know, she would see them at events and their face would be three, four shades lighter than the rest of their body. I mean, I think we are familiar with what that look looks like. Um, And then how she even went on to start bleaching her skin um, and then experience some side effects associated with that. You know, it does make your thin fragile, make your skin fragile. Um, and so she talks about how she damaged her own skin by doing that. And that was actually her stopping point, realizing, you know, she was actually doing damage to herself by trying to lighten her appearance. Um, and eventually she was able to kind of regain her uh, shade back. But we're just going to chat a little bit about bleaching, our experiences, if we have any with that, um, and how we feel like that affects our community as a whole. What are your thoughts? Okay. So she definitely pointed out, I think she noted that in a more modern context, you see a lot in African and Caribbean cultures, a lot more obvious, but it happens throughout the diaspora. Um, It pretty much happens in all colonized countries, even in like Um, Asian countries that have been colonized, this idea of being lighter Indian, like it's a whole thing. So um, what's interesting, of course, this is at the forefront of my mind in regards to the bleaching. I go to get my hair dye from the hair store and on the left aisle, and she was like, for my American sisters, don't act like this is not happening as well. It's shelves of bleach. And I'm like, oh, shoot. And of course, you know, you listen to something, you're really thinking about it. It's shelves of bleach, y'all. And I'm just like, soaps, it's lotions, it's sprays. It's just like, dang, you know, and trust me, if people weren't buying it, it would not be there, you know? And I know as a business, the amount of product you have speaks to how many people desire it. It's not a shelf. It's literally like, here's all the dark and lovelies, all the highlight, all the bleach, you know, all the hair dye. And then here's all the skin bleach. And I'm talking about top to bottom. I was like, Jesus, like, our body. So it just was so true. I think it's probably not as widely practiced in the same manner right. in traditional um, Black American households, but it shows up everywhere. Um, I mean, I really like K. Michelle and her talents, but she's looking a little lighter to me. Yeah, and I think like, like Brittany said, I think... Um, I think it's happening here, but I think it's maybe happening on a more professional level. So it's yeah. not as obvious. Um, yeah. And I think people are maybe renaming it for other procedures or whatever, but in the end, it's bleaching. I think, you know, I've, I'm, li- I'm not light, but I'm lighter. And so some of the 
difficulties and things like that, I have not experienced firsthand or the desire or even the thought to want to bleach my skin. Um, but having a medical background and knowing, you know, the damage that bleaching can cause, you know, not only did she talk about more fragile skin, but, you know, the risk for cancer, skin cancer, and, you know, you're actually removing the melanin and, and exposing your skin to harmful UV rays. And, and so the thought that you're willing to accept those risks, um, just the thought of being lighter and the desperation, you know, does make it, I guess, sad. It's like, your desire to want to look like this person surpasses your desire to want to be safe, to want to be alive, to not have permanent damage. Um, And so I think it's difficult. And I think the backstory to colorism is so huge. It's like, there's no one event. There's no one situation. There's so many layers to it that it's like almost impossible to like, have a full discussion about it. But like Brittany said, it's there, it's available, it's selling, people are buying these products. Um, And even like, I feel like Nicki Minaj wasn't this light when she started rapping. Mm-hmm. Like I feel like there's so many people where it's like celebrities we can think of where it's like, they didn't look like this when they came out 15, 20 years ago. Yeah. They look like different people. Yeah, in my undergrad classes, um, is something called Hollywood Beige, where if you're white, you get like more of a tan, sun-kissed glow. And if you're black or brown, you get lighter. And it's literally called like Hollywood Beige, where all of a sudden your hue starts to get lighter, your hair gets a little softer. And it's right. like, oh, money just don't change your hue. And it's not all of a sudden because you started um, drinking green smoothies. That's not right. how that works. Um, so it's a real thing. And like Brenna saying, the sad part about colorism is we realize the history of colonialism, the plantation, Jim Crow. Um, and she brings up a really good point about like how often you don't even hear about colorism in church. And I'm like, shoot, I ain't never heard nobody talk about colorism in church. But it's a real thing. You have full societies, organizations, fraternal orders, sororities, um, you know, that would not let you in, you know, when black women were first allowed to even start working in department stores, dark skinned black women couldn't do it. You know, back in video vixen culture, you might get one brown girl, you know, so it's a real thing. And, you know, she even talks about, you know, somebody might make in front of you because you're so light and somebody, you know, cracks on the fact that you can kind of pass. But the reality is the darker your skin, the more complicated your life will be globally. You know, it's not just like an American thing because of the deep, deep roots of colonialism. And when she started to talk about it being addressed from a Christian perspective, I was just like, dang, that is so true. I've had people talk about race, but colorism complicates this conversation so much. And it is a burden for Christians. And especially from a black church perspective, why is this not a conversation? Because it's deep ingrained and people need the therapy and they need the language and they need to understand that God cares about how complicated your life is. As Brianna says, you know, being of a lighter hue, you, you don't hit the same, you know, yes, I experienced sexism, racism, but I do realize that I have, you know, black and brown sisters 
and my brown doesn't mean people in the Latinx community that me darker that are going to experience a different level of marginalization, oppression in ways that the darker your skin is, you know, we still as black people, babies come out right. and check your ears and fingers. Right. Let's not pretend that's not a thing. Checking right. ears and fingers is still a thing. <laughs> and so that was, oh, my bad. But that was um, one of the pieces that stood out to me as almost like new information when she was talking about not that it doesn't happen now, but the earlier black church, how she was discussing how they did the paper bag test mm-hmm. and the door test and things like you don't realize that it's like now you, you know, they're experiencing so much racism, prejudice outside of being with other black people. But then they get with the black church, people who are supposed to embrace them and they're still being discriminated against based on their shade of blackness. So it's like, it wasn't just like Brittany said, it wasn't just um, exclusive to the outside world. It had been sucked into the place where they were supposed to feel safe. And so that was like, I was like, wow, you know, I wasn't, this is just not something that, you know, not having any type of history background other than, you know, standard college courses. That was just something I wasn't aware of, but honestly thinking about it, you're not shocked, but it's just like disappointing. And then kind of like Brittany said, it's like, and it, and like our author said, it's like, it's still not being addressed. It's like the pastor may get in the pulpit and discuss the horrors of racism, um, you know, and things like that. But it's like, what about the colorism that's being seen inside of the church? You know, that, that's something that's never really addressed. So she made a lot of really great points about that. Like so many points. Honestly, each chapter could be its own episode because right. it is so deep. Um, but I think just for the sake of the show and time, we're just kind of hitting on the points that hit home to us. But I mean, she jumps out and, you know, and it does make you check even your privilege that you could potentially have because you might be able to, yes, you're a black person, but be able to navigate easier than, you know, than other people. And right. it's a thing, um, especially for women. Um, and they are advocating for black women. And so as a black woman, you know, um, it's a lot of times easier to be a dark skinned man. I'm not saying that black men don't have their own thing, but desirability is still set by a white standard. And we mm-hmm. adopt that even as black people. So as a lighter skinned black woman, it's still easier to navigate society and it's real. And so gender plays a lot into colorism too. What's accepted, right. what's accepted you know, and unfortunately you've had really ugly conversations. I remember I've had guys say, you're the darkest I date because my kids need hope. Like that's super sad. Like we have such this ideology that I need my children to potentially possibly be lighter because genetics do whatever they want so that life can be easier. I mean, you might not have the language to say that, but even as kids and teens, you realize the lighter I am, I might be black, but at least I ain't dark. And that's right. a real change crazy um i think we kind of touched on my other point which was colorism in the church and so i don't have much else to say about it but um she does a really great job of also discussing you know current statistics when it look what it looks like for darker skinned people she quotes um a publication that from villanova researchers that said that There's more than 12,000 cases of African-American women in prison in North Carolina. 
Um, and they found that women with lighter skin tones received more lenient sentences and served less time than women with darker skin tones. Uh, and so things like that are, you know, the statistics that not only are we imprisoned at disproportional rates, but then you're looking at darker um, skinned African-American people getting even more, you know, longer sentences, um, disproportionate, maybe even like arrests. And so it's kind of like one of those things that if you look into it, even outside of what the statistics are for black people and look at, you know, darker skinned black people, you realize that colorism plays so much of a bigger role than we even think about. Yeah. It's like the privilege of not even thinking about it. Like I honestly, I don't think about it regularly because it's like, I just think of myself as being black. And then I know the, you know, the prejudice that go along with that. And then, you know, somebody who's maybe darker may then constantly think about what it's, what it looks like to be somebody who, you know, has a darker hue. So it's just, you know, very interesting. I'm glad she kind of brought up those points because there are things that I feel like I don't even think about regularly. Yeah, big facts. Um, and so even within the community, the manner in which you're able to navigate what's deemed as beauty, um, you know, and colors and ties into texture and eyes and it, it's so many things. But yeah, Michael Eric Dyson talks about that. His brother, who's now passed, um, was darker. And he talks about even when they were kids and would get in trouble and he would often get away with things as he was light. It's just this assumption when I see certain skin tones that you already bad. You right. know, it's a whole thing. So, I mean, like I said, you could do a whole episode on each chapter because it's just that deep and that good. Um, and I love the fact that they tie it back to God because God cares about these social injustices that we see. And, you know, they're always going back to connecting it to the church and who's visible, and who's not visible. What are we talking about? What are we not talking about? Right. Like, yes, I I loved. And that was chapter one. So I love that. Um, right. So the next chapter in part one. Uh, and part one is called Life, by the way. I don't think I said that. But um, the next chapter in part one is called Protest as Spiritual Practice. And this one is by Michelle Higgins. Um, they each have, you know, a very unique background and what they do and, and their education. So definitely look up Truth's Table. They have their own podcast website. So you guys can have a little bit more of understanding into who they are and how their individual chapters may, um, you know, their personal story may have shaped the stories they tell in their individual chapters. Um, I'm pretty sure Michelle is like a community organizer. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, this particular chapter, she talks about protests. She goes into it discussing some of the events that happened in Ferguson. I think Mike Brown is the first person she talks about and how he was shot, um, you know, and the protests that went along with that. Um, And then she goes on to name a few other uh, African-Americans that were killed at the hands of police, unarmed. Um, And then what it looked like, you know, the things that were happening to the protesters, you know, some of them going missing. And, you know, so she does a a good job of just kind of discussing what it looked like on the ground at that point, because she's from the area. Um. But within chapter two, she also breaks hers up into parts. Um, And so what I'll focus more on is part two. And she talks about protests in black Christian 
tradition. Uh, and she introduces the chapter by talking about Reverend Allen, who actually preached at a predominantly white church. He was able, you know, he was a great preacher. He was able to get a bunch of people flocking to the congregation each Sunday to hear him speak. Um, and he was an African-American and the church actually made the black members sit in the balcony. Um, and because of that, they almost did like a walkout. And through that walkout, he was able to actually found the first African Methodist Episcopal church. Uh, and she introduces the chapter this way, just to talk about how the black church has been such a big part of the protest movement. Um, and so I kind of just want to discuss a little bit about what it means to be a Christian and still be an activist. Um, and then what our role in the black church is in being a part of black lives matter and being able to speak up for those who are, you know, experiencing injustice. So what are your thoughts? Um, I loved it. I think it's almost sad that she had to do three parts because there's so many people within the body of Christ and that's everybody, right? Um, that don't believe in protests because how we even talk about with colorism, your privilege is a part of the way you see the world. And mm-hmm. so I think back to King and, and literally writing this letter to these clergymen <laughs> from jail in Birmingham where it was like, you need to sit down. And he's like, hold on. <laughs> you know, so this idea of protest, like you said, has always been in the black church. Um, super sad that we are fighting with other Christians to advocate why we need to stand up. And they're like, just chill, just sit down, just chill, just sit down, which is so interesting because it once again speaks to the way you read the Bible based off of your perspective, because Christ's life was protest. Like you got all all of you within these Roman societies and cultures. You are radical because you are speaking against what was going on. You are saying, they say live like this, but live like this, right? And so- by definition of protest, resistance, and speaking up against the status quo, that's Jesus all day long. Then we get into these very cushy definitions and versions of Christianity because the small, you know, the early church was, baby, y'all was on the run the whole time, you know, and all of a sudden it's like, mm-hmm. don't say nothing, be content, everybody chill, God just going to save you. And I'm like, when was God ever there on the business of just sit down and fall back? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Rarely. Stop. If anything, he said, I have not given you a spirit of fear. You need to get up and get out. But um, so like you said, I think and, you know, our pastor talks about this idea of social justice and the church being so important. And when you look at the civil rights movement, it does not happen without the church. Then when I look in 2020 um, and I think that's what made this chapter super sad because they focus a lot on um, Flynn and George not George Floyd, Mike Brown. I said they could have wrote this out the last year because we had our whole George Floyd movement, right? And they're right. talking about protests, not even from like 2020 on. I was like, dang, why is this so timely still? It makes you super sad, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think about how silent sometimes the church is. Most of your activists do not come from a church perspective, and that's problematic. And that's why you see young people like, what's the purpose of the church? Because y'all don't say nothing. Y'all don't speak on real issues. You don't show up when stuff happens. You are dependent on Black Lives Matters and other organizations. When it's like, if God is supposed to come and enact change, if life is important to God, why do we have to go to other organizations first? And a big part is the fact that believers don't want to be disrupted. Um, And I think age plays into that. I always think about what Tupac says, by the time you get to 30, they take the fight out of a man, right? And so young people have such a 
big voice into like activism. Protest is necessary. I think it is Christ centered. I've been recently listening to Tim Ross and he talks about why he loves teaching. Like he still loves adolescents, like being a youth pastor. Cause he said, you get one 15 year old on fire for God. Like they gonna change the world. So a lot of times, you know, it's a lot that comes with just wanting to have our safe spaces as black people. We understand why we just are trying to get a piece of the pie. Um, but this chapter was really good. I think for me, it was less on things I needed to know because I'm a big believer in protests. I, I did participate in a protest with George Floyd, like one of the peaceful protests and, and go out to a rally. Um, but I do understand as you get older, why it's not safe and why it's such a risk and all those things. But I think when you really start to examine what Jesus does, um, then protest becomes necessary And I think that's why it's so important for us to be exposed to other believers, because you see stuff outside of yourself. You start to see issues, you know, you know, but it's a whole thing. But, you know, I for the evangelicals and their belief that all the black people should just sit down and wait as they continue to adopt these systemic issues of racism. But I could go on and on. (laughs) Totally agree. It was really it was a really great chapter. And she also in part three, you know, brings in scripture just to kind of reinforce her discussing, you know, what protests look like in a biblical sense. And um, it's written really well. So I, I really enjoyed the chapter. I think the big piece was just her kind of stating her background, the organization she started in order to help those who have been experiencing injustice and then goes on to support you know, further support the need for protest um, by discussing what it looks like in the biblical sense. And then also discussing what your role could look like as a Christian um, being a part of, you know, a protest movement. So very well written. Um, And Brittany kind of is going to pull out some of the high points from the next two chapters. Okay. So Ekimini um, and I, I, I'm so sorry, sister, if I'm tearing it up. I feel like we kind of close. Um, so this chapter was called Decolonized Discipleship. Um, I think it, even though it was the second chapter was written by Michelle, I think this lends itself well into the third chapter when you start thinking about why we think the way we do. And so they right. talked about, um, probably I have four major points here. The first one was disentangling white supremacy um, and how deeply ingrained we are inside white supremacy. And even as like, Black believers, we still often move in white supremacy and these beliefs about ourselves that mm-hmm. um, whiteness is still like the way we see God. So just because I'm a black person who's a Christian does not mean I view Jesus through a black lens. I often view it through a through through a white lens. I love the section on white Jesus. Um, even at my church, I see white in our stained glass. I'm like, why is white Jesus here? Wow. Um, these powerful black spaces, but you still adopt this ideology of whiteness because realistically, and me and you talk about this all the time, why is white Jesus still something that's this prevalent? Where in the Middle East do people look like this? It does not exist. Um, And so- Can there be a description of Jesus in the Bible and people still want him to be white Jesus? Right, and try to make it like this random symbolic thing. Like, what are you talking about? I'm not saying he look like me, but he don't got that blonde hair and blue eyes. Right. My hair is not silky. Jesus said, the Bible says it's good and thick. You hear what I say? <laughs> yeah. 
So, um, and then what that image does, because I always say, if you cannot see yourself in God, it becomes problematic. So your viewership of yourself becomes so stained when you can't see yourself in God. That's why white people move the way they do. Because when Jesus and God look like you, of course I'm amazing. Of course I'm everything. Because when I look at my God, I look at myself. And so to take that away from the majority of the world, because let's be honest, the world is black and brown. Right. When you realize how much of a minority white people are, it's disgusting because you look at how dominant and like imposed their culture is into everything and their images. But the world is black and brown. Um, and it's so important to see yourself in God. So they talk about that. They talk about that white Jesus, that idol of white Jesus. Um, and it really doesn't even become about what Christ does, but just this image which becomes an idol and how we all buy into these spaces. And she talks about she's going to speak at this church. And she looks up and it's like, why is white Jesus here at this very prominent black church? Right. How do we even got into this? And I think about this all the time. You know, I think about my mom who always loves super cute gifts. And I remember one time she went into the Christian bookstore. It was not a black angel. It was not a black Jesus. There was not an Asian, a, a Hispanic. And it's just like, so not only is Jesus white, all the celestial beings, all the children in the books, so what do you even say when I go into a Christian bookstore? When I go to Christian bookstores, y'all, I can really find anybody that looks like me or anybody that's non-white. Like, think about how diverse the world is. Only white people get to be in heaven. Oh, okay. Um, they talk about sexual assault and the church's silence of this in this chapter. She does a great job. Um, how often we've seen people that have been groomed by youth ministers and pastors and how these things are not discussed. If anything is kind of put off on like you being fast, you being problematic. I don't know if y'all say honk, if you love Jesus, a lot of those ideals show up in like this wayward pastor that is like swept under the rug under forgiveness. Um, she talks about therapy and trauma and then just advocates for the black church in general, because she talks about how this evangelical like column article, I can't remember exactly, wanted her to write. And then she talked about like race and they were like, well, this sounds right. really angry. And maybe you need to think about a different approach. Mm-hmm. Um, so think about the larger body of Christ as a whole, how often our white brothers and sisters think talking about race and social justice is too radical and non-Christ-like. And we just need to like suck it up and forgive. And that was probably a when I think back to like Dylan Roof, remember the white boy who shot up everybody at Bible study? Mm-hmm. And I hated that narrative. Um, even recently, probably the last year or so, um, the white woman police officer who accidentally shot a boy, she was drunk and thought it was her apartment. And like the brother came and like hugged her. And I think oftentimes we have like messy forgiveness where it's like, oh, it's not a big deal. We're just going to love in Christ. When it's like, this is a real issue. Let's acknowledge it. Right. A lot in this. Um, and that's why the evangelical tradition for me is so problematic. Um, and unfortunately, when most Americans think about Jesus, they think about that very conservative, radical Republican Jesus, who I completely dissociate myself from. Because y'all put all the American flags up. Like Jesus would have been walking around waving an American flag. Houseway, Jesus came for the world. Why do we think Jesus would be walking around with an American flag? We'll be gone. Right. I'm confused. But that's, that's kind of what I have for this chapter. I don't know if you want to comment. Very true. She did a really great job. And I and I think I've seen she she was mixed. She was black and white and she was in foster care and raised. I'm talking about completely somebody completely different, not the author of this chapter. But anyway, this was a pastor who has a a, a black and white background. 
Um, but she grew up in foster care, taking taken care of by a white family. And so obviously her identity is probably more, um, maybe more white, but she did have a black husband and, and, you know, kids who also reflected that, but she posted a picture of white Jesus and has some type of caption on her, which really wasn't intended to be anything about white Jesus, but she just said something about Jesus in the caption. And I remember reading that one of the commenters were like, well, why did you post white Jesus? And her kind of brushing it off saying, well, you know, this is just a representation of Jesus. And, you know, really it was about what my caption was about. And I felt like she brushed it off. And I felt like in that moment, I'm like, but it does matter. And it is important that as a black woman, even though your identity may be more than one race, you have a black husband, you have black children, you're over a black, a predominantly black congregation. It's important that your congregation, your children, the the other youth within your church see representation of who Jesus is. Because you never see the white poster, the white pastor posting a Jesus who looks more authentic to who Jesus is. And then if he was, his congregation probably would be in uproar. And so it's like, why do we choose to force white Jesus on black Christians when it's like, it will never be the other way around. And mm-hmm. I feel like there should be more of a focus on being true to the um, appearance of what Jesus looked like. And then I feel like none of us really know what Jesus looked like. Right. So if I'm making it up and I'm serving a God and I love someone, you know what I mean? Why not make him look like, what I see around me, mm-hmm. even if we're all making up what Jesus was like, which we are, you know, we have a description, but nobody really knows what Jesus looked like. So it's like, why do I have to make my representation look like a white man with, with blue eyes? If I don't see that in my everyday. Yeah. So like, yeah. So I feel like it's hugely problematic. Like Brittany, she says, like, why are these churches have white Jesus looking at me? with the lamb on his side and the stained glass. It's like, why? Yeah. I'd rather you not even have representation. Put a cross than, up. Right. Then it'd be a 98% black congregation and white Jesus is looking over everybody. Like, mm-hmm. so I totally agree. I think it matters. It absolutely matters. And people who try to act like it doesn't matter are people who are pushing the white Jesus narrative. I do not like the representation of white Jesus. I feel like I would rather a neutral looking Jesus who like tan, brown mm-hmm. tan, there's like a mixture of everybody than him to be white with blue eyes because no, nobody I, looks like that. Yeah. Okay. So, and I, and I think it becomes so important <laughs> because the reality is it's not just like, oh, this is what my culture makes Jesus. Now, the reality was if there was a white Jesus, an Asian Jesus, a black Jesus. Right. No right. Jesus, but we know that's not the case. And so the reality is you had white people perpetuate this image on black and brown bodies and then promote their version of the faith. Let's be honest. I'm so tired of y'all trying to act like white people introduce us to Jesus. Stop. Everybody time out. Flag on the play. They did not. But they did perpetuate westernized versions of Christ. Right. Um, because let's be honest, baby Jesus was rolling around in Egypt. So 
Jesus was closer to the African continent than Europe. Right. The white people in the Bible are the Romans who are the oppressors. But when you perpetuate this image and you perpetuate, this is how you have to see God. And now you're going to look at my oppressors. It's extremely problematic. So I do agree. Make Jesus look like your culture. But when your culture becomes the dominant culture by slavery, incest and thievery, and then you perpetuate that image onto other people, don't play with me. So you cannot shut it off. It's 2022. Y'all are still afraid to brown Jesus out. Um, and you don't want them to look authentic because you have to acknowledge a lot of prejudice that you have. Girls can be people in heaven clutching all of their pearls. Right. It is so very, true. Very, true. And I do think it's important for us to push a different narrative. So I, I also truly love that chapter. I think it was really great. Yes. And then I think it bleeds right into chapter four, which is forgiveness. And Christina writes this chapter. Um, and so she talks about forgiveness, um, how forgiveness has been manipulated a lot of times as Christians were just like, oh, just forgive. And it's like, no, 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 no. Forgiveness is a command. We know. And even outside of the Bible, psychologists show that the weight of forgiveness becomes so powerful. Like when you actually forgive people and let stuff go, you're released. So we know that that's a very real thing. Forgiveness is great for mental health. It's soul care, self care, it's all of those things. But we know that people often manipulate forgiveness so they can do what they want to do to victims, to cultures, systemically. And she points that out. Like I've been called to forgive, but I don't have to receive um, these things from societies and people that want to take advantage of my community and my people. Like I don't have to accept you into my space. Right. Even though I'm called to forgive. And she talks about how that even lends itself to like body autonomy for black women and how black women have been misusing you know, taking advantage of for healthcare reasons, from plantation reasons, from assault reasons. And she talked about that's why body autonomy for black women becomes so much bigger than pro-life, pro-choice. Um, and just your ability to make your decisions by yourself. And we know this is a hot topic right now with reversal of Roe versus Wade. And I know the Christian community is divided. Um, and I hate people trying to make it like, this is what Jesus would do. And I was like, I don't think Jesus really wants anybody to have to have an abortion, but I think he also understands the complexities of society, <laughs> the complexities of the medical field, the complexities of socioeconomic status. And um, you're talking about fallen people in a fallen world. And it's not as cut and dry as people want to make it. Right. I think just like with rape, everybody found like that one person that was like, put themselves out or lied or whatever. It was all of a sudden, see, they be lying. It's like, no, that one girl lied. But the other 10 did not. Right. <laughs> and I think it's the same thing with like abortion. Like that one person was like, I don't care. I'm just gonna have an abortion. It's like, that's one person, but the majority of women struggle. It's usually their last choice. It's usually right. when they feel choiceless when choice has been taken from them. Um, and so to take that off the table, it's very easy to tell somebody just have the baby and give it up for adoption when you're not having the baby and giving it up for adoption. Right. Um, so I think I love the fact that they bring a body autonomy because those are those hard Christian topics that people like to make cut and dry and black and white or either not talk about it at all. Mm-hmm. She talks about like dead and debtors. And then she talks about theodicy um, and it's the attempt to understand God and suffering and how, um, you know, people struggle like. You know, I'm just reading something like, you know, does God even like black women? We are consistently at the bottom of the totem pole and the mules of the world. Jordan Hurston talks about, um, but then she talks about these promises from God and she still writes it in a very hopeful way. But I think authentically acknowledging how difficult um, forgiveness is and 
And I always say I've learned um, that forgiveness is a process. Um, And when you have wounds that are often so deep saying I'm over it today might not be, but I can learn how to heal and the importance and going back chapter three with the therapy and the traumas, all of those things play out. And too often I've seen um, what Christ has presented as something beautiful, forgiveness to free ourselves up. Um, even Peter says, Lord, how many times should I forgive them? Seventy times seven. Um, you know, and Christ says 70 times seven, because it used to be that in the Old Testament, they would teach like you forgive somebody three times, you're done with it. Mm-hmm. Um, so forgiveness was supposed to become a breed, like liberating, because that's about Old Testament. You got killed for everything. I would have been dead. <laughs> so it's supposed to be liberating, but we manipulate it and we play against it. And that's how people walk away from the church. So I love the fact that um, she complicates the narrative and authentically talks about um, what that means as a Christian versus, like I said, those very cookie cutter things that cause us to have internal bitterness and resentment. And that's really pulled out of chapter four. Totally agree with that. Um, Chapter four also was a really great chapter. And I think it was an important conversation to have. And I love that they choose to discuss issues that are traditionally, like you said, ignored or um, not really discussed to the full potential, just kind of um, maybe made to be more simplified. So I think it's just super practical and it just feels like you're having a conversation with friends um, Mm -hmm. and discussing hard topics and getting opinions Um, that makes sense. And they make sense because they're able to really make it relatable, but then they also pull some Jesus in and they say, well, what about this and this? And, you know, this is an example of why we believe that this is maybe what, um, Jesus thinks is potentially the right thing to do. So I enjoyed the part one. It's good. I think it's a great background. Uh, and it's a great introduction into what I feel like they're trying to do. And so it pulls in some really kind of like maybe hot topics that should mm-hmm. be discussed more in the church. Um, and they all give their own take on on what they feel like is missing uh, and what and why they feel like this is something as Christians we should all be a part of. So, yeah, great job. Ladies. I feel like it was good. I agree. Um, and just going back, um, especially listening to the podcast, they always talk about having a seat at the table, right? Um, and the reality is, you know, we've heard Black women historically say, they don't give you a seat, I made my own table. And unfortunately, when we think about Christianity, we often don't think about Black voices. And then unfortunately, even in Black communities, we don't think about women's voice. And um, I think it, it's a great reminder of why it's so important that everybody gets to come to the table and talk about God. Right. Because the reality is, we might have accomplished some stuff if we would actually listen to women in the church. Um, and as much as they are advocating for the black church too often, the church as a whole, and even the black church silences the voice of women. Um, and they're like amazing. The perspective they're bringing, like Brianna says, it's deep, but it's very tangible. to anybody. Right. Right. And yeah, for sure. I like how they do it. I mean, I don't, you don't even really need a Bible background to understand what they're discussing. Mm-hmm. I feel like it's really good because they make, they don't push Jesus too hard. If that makes any sense. It's like, this is what it is because we all live here. And I think sometimes the church has a hard time making Jesus relatable 
making him something that I feel like affects my day to day and not some type of fantasy. And so I think they do a really good job of that. It's like, look, we go through these struggles. I'm a black woman. I experience colorism. I experience injustice. I believe black lives matter. And I'm, I also love Jesus. And it's like, you can do both mm-hmm. and you can fight for both. And to be able to speak up for black women, like Brittany said, um, in church, I feel like it's super important because I feel like, and they realize that in a lot of places that voice is missing. So mm-hmm. very good job, ladies. I think it was a great part one. Good read. Okay, church club. Um, so like you said at the beginning, we're breaking this up into two episodes. So we won't be introducing anything for next episode here as far as a new book or bubbly. But, um, you know, definitely if you have not finished reading, go ahead and finish reading. So that way we can do part two and three. Yes, you got to come back for part two and three. Part two gets it in, baby. When they start talking about them relationships, I'm like, whoo. Um, so definitely, you got to come back. You got to come back. Please do. See you guys next episode. All right, good people. Deuce, deuce, deuce. Bye.